0: The reading is from Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things
1: We're going to turn to Romans chapter 8, please. A classic in its own right, I'm sure you are aware of that. And this is the heading we have, Our Suffering and God's Love. The best way that I can begin is to quote that consummate expositor, uh, John Stott, And um, he says that, without doubt, one of the best-known, best-loved parts of the Bible is Romans chapter 8. And he goes on to say this in context. It is a ray of sunshine breaking through the stormy clouds of Romans 7, where, with a desperation, you have the Apostle Paul crying, Oh, wretched man! that I am, who shall set me free from this body of sin and death. What uh, John Stott goes on to say is this, and I'll just quote this to you just as a way of uh, introduction, and it's this, that in Romans 7, Paul has been preoccupied with the place of the law, but in Romans 8, He is preoccupied with the work of the Spirit. And you have two marvellous contrasting passages here. The essential contrast Paul paints is between the weakness of the law and the power of the Spirit. For over against indwelling sin, the law is powerless. It points to our sin, but it cannot remedy it. And what Paul does now is to speak about the indwelling Spirit, the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer, who is, as he says, our liberator from the law of sin and death. Thus, he sums it up like this. The Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say... A life which is animated, sustained, directed and enriched by the Holy Spirit. For without him, the Holy Spirit, the true Christian and true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable and impossible. And I guess it's helpful when we think of the inner struggles that we have and think about the potential of the power of the Spirit that is with us to help us. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation, that rallying call of Charles Wesley in that great hymn. It begins with no condemnation. And then it it ends and is summed up in the last verse, almost the penultimate sentence, no separation. That is a clarion call for the believer to give us confidence and assurance, obviously not in ourselves. For Romans 7 is the gateway as we see how impoverished we are to cope with our indwelling sin and how life in the spirit is the imperative. So there it is, no condemnation in Christ, no separation from him. And packed in is this marvellous chapter. So, if you like, the key to victory over sin, even among the most mature believer who has ever walked this earth, or the most immature, is to live in the Spirit. Living in the Spirit. And what Romans 8 does for us is it gives us this sort of foundation for this. We've already seen that we are to be spiritual groaners, this inner groaning of the work of the Spirit as we long for God to work in us and through us, but we're not to be whingers or complainers. The one is negative, the other one is productive and positive as we work out our Christian lives. So Romans 8 gives us the foundation of this life in the spirit. And I just want to give three quick headings and then uh, four questions. First of all, here it is, this word justification. Justification, which really means I am alive in Christ. So, as we began Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore, yes, here's the struggle with the flesh There's the sinful nature. Why am I like what I I am so often? However, in Christ there is now no condemnation for those who belong to him. And then looking at verse 30 and 30 to 33. Just look at this. Those he predestined he also called those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It seems to pile on in, in, in the affirmative. What it is to be alive in Christ. And then this series of questions. Verse 33. What then shall I say in response to this? If God is for us. If God is for us. Who can be against us? And a whole series of questions are posed. But it's a wonderful promise, isn't it? It's a wonderful promise for the believer. However difficult, however much we mess up, however we have setbacks and and, and disappointments, either with other people or ourselves, we are alive in Christ Jesus. The prospect of death is now in contrast to the assurance of life. Assurance of life best way I think to illustrate this now is to think as Jesus portrayed uh, the prodigal son you'll remember uh, when he returns home and he's made this confession I'm not worthy to be called your son I'm not even worthy to be one of your servants if you could but give me a job and I won't uh, I'll keep out of your way and there's a party that is thrown as you're aware and there's the fatted calf that's killed and in the background is this elder brother who is very critical of the father you can just imagine the conversation look he's already ruined uh, the the reputation of the family uh, and, and half of our business has gone and now you're having him back you must be mad and the reply of the father is this this brother of yours, this son of mine was dead but is alive. He was lost and is found. And you see the contrast. It couldn't be greater. If you've seen that wonderful portrait of Rembrandt, the original is in in Moscow, in, in the museum, in the art gallery. And you see the father greeting the son and the son is kneeling there and yet in the background is the elder brother distancing himself, not wanting to be part of this, for to admit that you've messed up, to admit that you are dead, to admit that you are lost, to admit that without the forgiveness of the Father, you have nothing and you are nothing. And it is right that we should celebrate. And there are times, you know, when people want to turn the Christian life into a, a funeral parlor, and the Father says, No, it's a party, it's a celebration. Now, of course, there's place for both. But in this context here, justification is I'm alive in Christ. He has done it. He's forgiven me. He's reconciled me. He's brought me back. And, and the death of Christ wasn't then just to save us. I don't want to minimize our salvation. That's a, a, quite a sentence to make, isn't it? But I say it again. It wasn't just to save us, humble and glorious as that is, but it's to change us. That is the point. I never forget when Marlon Baker came to our church some 15 years ago or more, and she had just written that song, Jesus, you are changing me. The blind singer, Jesus, you are changing me. By your spirit, you're making me like you. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Help me to be willing to let you have your way. And somebody there said to her, When you get to heaven, first thing that will happen to you is you will see Jesus not something but now you're changing me this work of grace is going on whatever my circumstances he saved me and indeed in a sense the, the, the encouragement and at the same time the challenge is that he's changing me and justification then leads to sanctification this, this, this next sentence that you have If justification is, I'm alive in Christ, then surely sanctification is, I am living in the Spirit. Or to use the language of Galatians, where Paul speaks about the fruit, and he says, this fruit will come, but keep in step with me. Don't be out of step with me. Stay with me. Let's do this together. Sanctification. In contrast to justification, justification once for all, sanctification ongoing and continuous all the time. It's a process. And in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit affirms that God's love is invincible. It is invincible. And so the classic verse, here it is, that has sustained people in the most difficult of circumstances It's very humbling for me to have known some Christian people who have gone through harsh and difficult experiences. And they would be able to say, you know, this experience is not good. But God is good. And we can misunderstand Romans 8.28, can't we? All things do work together for good. But not all things are good. There's nothing good about cancer. There's nothing good about broken relationships. There's nothing good about Alzheimer's. People who've lost their dignity and purpose. And so we live in a world that is massively imperfect. And the imperfection impinges upon all of us all the time in varying degrees. And yet you could say God works for good to those who love him. The classic statement is Joseph, isn't it? Where he'd been betrayed by his brothers. Their character assassinated him. They even tried to kill him. Told lies to their father. Broke their father's heart. Now in Egypt. Face to face. And he spe- it's, it's incredibly humbling, isn't it? If anybody had a right to, to be warped and distorted in bitterness and all of that, here it, here it is. You know the life of Joseph. And he says, you intended to harm me. And you did. Deeply. But God meant it for good. Joseph is saying Romans 8:28 Long before it was written. And we need to do that. That God is working in all situations. So we are not saying everything is good. But God is good. And he works in all situations. He's working for our good. But I guess the one thing that is often left out um, in Romans 8, 28, where Paul seems to imply, now, you actually know this. Do you see what he says? For we know. Well, do you? Do you really? Come on. In your mind now, where you've got stuck, do you know that God is working for good in that situation? It's, It's patently not good. And it's not fair. But do you know? Really know? Do you know subjectively, experientially? Paul seems to imply that's the life of the Spirit. That's the life of sanctification. That his providence is good. That his power is invincible. And his ultimate purpose is for his glory and our good and that's why we can say Romans 8:28 and then we come to the last and this and there is a progression here isn't there justification alive in Christ Jesus sanctification keeping in step with the spirit glorification i am secure in god's presence i am secure in god's presence So verse 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, stay with it, he glorified. Secure in God's presence. Our mortality will one day put on immortality and it's no wonder that wonderful declaration of Paul when looking at the harrowing experiences of life, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, it is inconceivable what God has prepared for those who love him and we have his presence with us when we think about Our mortality for a moment. Maybe you, like me, you have uh, elderly parents. I mean really elderly. My father's grown to 96. Um, When you compare, when I compare what he used to do as a, a steel worker, working all hours, and now frail and fragile, you realize something of our mortality and if we should be blessed and there's no nothing sentimental about old age nevertheless we would experience that frailty one day our mortality will be clothed with immortality glorification and here i think we have a glimpse just a glimpse of the glory of God as he's working with us, for us, and through us. Well, okay, what is this glory then? Well, literally, the literal meaning is manifestation of his splendor. God revealing his splendor, his glory. But that's the thing that Paul had said previously. The very thing of which we fall short of. Do you remember? All have sinned and fallen short of the Glory of God. Well, that which we were falling short of, now has been made good. We receive his glory. But the challenge here is, yes, we receive it. But the challenge is, reflect it. Reflected glory, like Moses. The glory of God. And surely, surely there is and this is the, the title of the sermon uh, our suffering and God's love is that, is that such a contradiction? It seems to be sometimes. There is a link between glory and suffering. Look in verse 17 uh, verse, verse 17 through. Look at this. Now, uh, Romans 8. If we are children then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings plural in order that we might share in his glory, do you see it? And it seems to me that you can't separate that. And so, I consider that our present sufferings, you, you can fill in the gap there, as I will have to fill in mine, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you see it? The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subject to frustration and so on and so forth. This idea of the restored, reflected glory and indeed the received glory from him. So our destiny, our destiny is a new body and a new world in the language of Romans 8:18 to 20 a new body and a new world doesn't your heart sink when you s- see the, the spillage of this oil in New Mexico and think of the implications of it in terms of the ecology it's easy to criticise, we're all dependent on oil one day a new world and a new body Our suffering now, God's glory now, and our destiny. I am so secure in God now that I receive his glory and perhaps unintentionally or unconsciously I reflect this glory in my relationships, in a world tarnished and polluted by human sin and selfishness. So what about these, very quickly, these four rhetorical questions? Uh, for you doing your GCSEs here, you know that a rhetorical question is, is both to persuade, but also to produce effect. So the question isn't sort of asked to give information as such. The information is already assumed. You, 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 you have this The rhetorical question is to produce the effect in you. So these questions, there are five asked, but we're going to concentrate on four because two of them are almost the same. And let's just look at these as we conclude. Romans 28 to 31. Here's the question. If God is for us, who can be against us? That is a good question to ask. It's one of these things where you speak perhaps to your children or or, or to to your friends or in in a prayer group or perhaps a colleague at work. Look, these terrible things are happening. But, you know, if you've got God in your life, nothing can shake me. And you'll see in a moment that, that, that Paul seems to exaggerate with the sort of things that can be brought against us. Now, of course, no one is saying that there aren't temptations. Distractions within and without. Sometimes the, the type of nature that we have, some of us are naturally pessimistic, introvertish. And some of the struggles that we have are, are part of that temperament. So we can say in situations that we face, whatever we like, if, if I've entrusted my life to God, he will not abandon me and how, why do i say this well look the christian has an invincible trio we call it the trinity an invincible trio you see in verse 26 there it is just look, just read this in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So, what is that? The Holy Spirit is helping me. I'm facing some particular weakness, problem in the family, a disappointment, strained relationship, prospect of unemployment, ill health, treatment, becoming a patient. In the NHS, the Holy Spirit is helping me. But then secondly, look at verse 28. God is working for me. All things work together for good to those who love God. So we're beginning to answer the question, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, in what sense is he for me? In this sense, the Holy Spirit is helping me. God is working for me. And look at verse 34. Christ is praying. That's a wonderful thing. Maybe, like me, you're not so good at uh, your prayer life very often. Well, look, verse 34. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to, raised to life? Is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. So there's good three good reasons. Three good reasons. The invincible pre God is for me. Who can be against me? Secondly, God graciously gives all we need. Now, of course, we, all, we know that doesn't mean he gives us what we want, but what we need. And sometimes some of those things overlap somewhat. But this is typical of Paul. What he does in his reasoning here... Try to get into his reasoning, into his logic. He moves his argument from the lesser to the greater. Do you see that? From the lesser to the greater. Let's look at verse 32 again. Um, There it is. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Jesus used the same approach... Just look. This is our only cross-reference in Matthew chapter six. You're familiar with this, from the lesser to the greater. Just to see this, Matthew 6:25. And where is it being illustrated? Something that racks our lives so often, and it is the issue of worry. Matthew 6, and verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. All we're doing now is illustrating from the lesser to the greater. What you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air, lesser to the greater. They do not sow or reap or store into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are are you not much more valuable than they? Do you see it? The lesser to the greater. Who of you by worrying? It's always. You don't have to be a great preacher. To to challenge people about worry. We're all worriers. It's part of our sinful nature. But here's the question. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? The implication is of course. You are going to significantly reduce it. Verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor would dress like one of these and so on and so forth. You see what he's doing? From the lesser to the greater. And this is is the challenge for us here when we think about will he not graciously give us all that we need? So I say to you, as to myself, reduce your worry. Get out of the stress zone. God will give you what you need. Thirdly, who can bring any charge? Who can bring an accusation? And so we move now to the courtroom. You're brought to the bar of justice, and an accusation is brought. And as if the judge would say, I find no fault. Not guilty. Not guilty. So you see verse 33 to 34, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, not the church, not the apostles, not the angels. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? Who is he? Bring on the judge of all the earth, Christ Jesus. He died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding. He is Our advocate, the work of the Spirit. Do you see it? The courtroom scene. And who can step forward and accuse and condemn the believer who is in Christ? Well, the answer to that, of course, is the devil. He's called the accuser of God's people. And he says to us often about our guilt. One of the songs that has the test of time is very popular when Satan tempts me to despair and tell me of the guilt within upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the Savior died my sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied he looks on Jesus and he issues a pardon to me not guilty and the last question. With this we close. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And now it almost becomes, almost I say to you, the language of exaggeration. Look at it for yourself. Think of these things that are piled up as the Apostle Paul begins to make suggestions of things that could separate us from the love of Christ verse 35 shall p- trouble sometimes you hear people say I'm not in a good place trouble hardship persecution famine nakedness danger Soul. as it is written for your sake, we face death all day long. We considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, not so. In all these things, that is so powerful, isn't it? It's not that these things are not going to come. They'll come. They are coming. Some have already had them in good measure, lesser, and for others more. Yes, but they'll come. Now, this is the conviction. With this rhetorical question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 38, for I am convinced, I'm persuaded that neither. And he begins with the big one, doesn't he? Deal with that one and the others will find their place. Death. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither the present nor the future nor the powers, neither height, depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are good questions to put to ourselves as we live out our Christian life, as we face some of these ongoing difficulties. Paul makes a formidable list of troubles. I don't know how you relate to them. These Hardships and trials that come. The threats of a hostile, pagan society. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Rome. It isn't easy to be a Christian now. It never has been. I'm almost tempted to say if it is easy, there's something wrong. And the inevitable times of economic hardship and the possibility of martyrdom for the faith. We read about these things. They, they, they happen all the time in the church. Out there. Far away. Who's to know? And having concluded. Paul seems to say that we are hyper conquerors. I had to take a deep breath. Because I say hypochondriacs. There are plenty of those out here. But no. hyper. Hyper conquerors. Look at verse 37. In all these things we are, what is it to be more than a conqueror? More than conquerors, not hypochondriacs. Hyper conquerors through the victorious power of the risen Lord, wherever he has placed us now at this particular time. Our God is invincible. And through our relationship with Him, we may enjoy this abundant grace, full of spiritual energy and power. That's the spirit that we need. And whatever our suffering, God's love will prevail, it is invincible. I want us to sing this final hymn now, which is a rare example of devotion and theology as it comes together. Just make it our prayer as we bring our service to a close. and Think about these questions and the affirmation of what it is to be safe in Jesus Christ. Immortal owners rest on Jesus' head. My God, my portion, And my living bread. In him I live. Upon him cast my care. He saves from death, destruction, and despair. He is my refuge in each deep distress. The Lord, my strength and glorious righteousness. Through floods and flames, he leads me safely on and daily makes his sovereign goodness known. And our response at the end of it's like a summing up, if all this is true, oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. His beauty's trace, his majesty adore. Live near his heart. Rest in his love each day. Hear his dear voice. And all his will obey.